Over the last several Sunday mornings, we have been considering the nature, the character, the attributes of God. I've said previously, and I say again, it was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And we have studied the fact that God does not change. I hope that that enters your mind when you think about God, that Jesus Christ, who is deity, He is God, is the same yesterday, today, forever. I, I, I trust that when you think of the character and the nature and the attributes of God, you think of the one that in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That you think of an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere God. A gracious God, a holy God. We have studied many of His attributes, and on this Lord's Day, we want to consider a loving God. When you think of God, again, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. I hope in addition to these other things that we have studied, you will consider the attribute of a loving God. The greatest love story ever told is not Romeo and Juliet. It is not Casablanca, or as some of you more refined folks say, Casablanca, you know, I don't know. Uh, it is not Beauty and the Beast. Some of us feel like we're living that out. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm the beast, uh, of course. But uh, those are love stories that uh, many Americans are pretty familiar with, but uh, those are not the greatest love story ever told. The greatest love story ever told is seen very simply in the cross of Christ. That love story is a love story that should not be taken for granted by the regular church attender. That symbol, the, the cross, we see it sometimes on lapels or we see it on necklaces. It is a reminder of the greatest love story ever. The cross of Christ is a beautiful symbol of the love of God. The hymn writer said, the love of God is rich and pure. I believe he was right. The hymn writer said, the love of God is measureless and strong. Certainly, he was right. Somebody says, Pastor Johnson, as we consider the nature and the character and the attributes of God, tell me today about the love of God. I submit to you that John, by the way, John, the human penman of our scripture reading, our passage, is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He answers that question when you say, tell me about the love of God. John does that incredibly well as he pens these inspired words, these God-breathed words. Look at verse number 10 of 1 John chapter 4. You say, tell me about the love of God. John says, herein is love. Listen to this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want you to notice several things in just this one verse. First of all, we'll consider that the love of God takes the initiative. The love of God takes the initiative. Secondly, we'll consider that the love of God provides propitiation. Theological term found in this passage. The love of God provides propitiation. And then thirdly and lastly, we will consider the fact that the love of God, and notice the phrase in the verse, sent His Son. So the love of God takes the initiative. Secondly, the love of God provides propitiation. Thirdly, the love of God sent 
his son. So first of all, this idea of the love of God taking the initiative. It is obvious in our verse, verse number 10, as, as John pens inspired words, he says, here in his love, and listen to this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Notice in verse number 19, the Bible says of chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. When you consider a loving God, consider that that love took the initiative, if you will. That divine being, our supreme being, the God of this Bible, He loved you before you ever loved Him. Often when we think of love, we want to put it in human terms. And I'm going to give you a human illustration and then, and then throughout the message in several different ways, I, I'm going to debunk the idea of putting it in human terms. Uh, but... I feel like I loved my wife before she ever loved me. Uh, I took the initiative, if you will, to pursue her. Um, and, and that's typical. Sometimes it works the other way around. But, but for us, uh, I was pursuing her, and I uh, met her. I actually took the initiative, if you will. I was sitting up on a platform. Uh, I, I, was, I was about 18 years old, I think. We were, I was 18 when we met, and I was at Faith Baptist Church in Avon, Indiana, and I was the congregational song leader on a Wednesday night. I had been at Bob Jones University, uh, and I took a week of cuts, and my pastor was Mark Monty, and he said, James, when you're in town on this Wednesday night, I want you to lead the congregational singing at Faith Baptist Church in Avon. And I said, yes, sir. And I had taken a semester of Dr. Coleman's congregational song leading class, and so I had just a little bit of a foundation, and I grew up under Mike and Mark Monty, so I had seen them leading songs. This is me leading songs. I had, I had learned some of that, and so he said, James, you come and lead, and, and, uh, and I said, sure. So it's three to five minutes before the service is supposed to start, and I'm on the platform, and I am nervously preparing my mind to lead the congregational singing, and I'm standing next to Pastor Monty, who is six foot four. He's standing very tall next to me, and then he whispers over to me, and he says, James, there's someone here that I want you to meet. And so from the platform, he leads me, and, and the auditorium there is set up similar with three sections, and so he leads me down this way and down about to where Brother Keenan is sitting and there was, in that section of the auditorium, Britain. I took the initiative, if you will, to walk off the platform, follow Pastor Monty. I walked all the way down. I extended my hand, and I said, I'm James Johnson. And she said, I'm Britton Johnson. I'm Britton Gwaltney. <laughs> Gwaltney is her maiden name. And, uh, and we met, and we chatted for just a moment. And I was nervous. I was already nervous to be leading the songs. And then to meet such a beautiful woman, I was extremely more nervous. And, and then I, was, I remember rubbing my sweaty hands on my pants as I walked down so that she didn't feel a, you know, a washcloth, a wet washcloth of a hand. And, and, uh, and, and trying to be confident and, and those kinds of things, put on those airs, even though that was not what was going on in my heart, and, and just meet her. And then a few days goes by and uh, after getting to meet her, and I thought... I'd like to talk to her. So in the church directory, I'm thankful for church directories, there was a phone number listed uh, for her parents there, and her uh, name was listed below her parents, and so I thought, uh, here's my opportunity to call her. And so, now I, I didn't have the confidence, though, to call her directly and just say, hey, how, how you doing? What's going on? Remember meeting me? I didn't have the confidence to do that. Uh, so I decided to put my sister up to calling her for me. Um, and so... And so I said to Cassandra, 
uh, I said, and Cassandra's two or three years younger than me, I said, now here's what you do. I I'd like to talk to her, but I'm a little nervous, so would you call for me and make some small talk and just say a few nice things, because Cassandra had met her a time or two, and, and maybe rehearse some of the things that you guys had discussed, and just see how she is, and maybe talk about how you want to have a friendship with her, and then maybe bring me up and see what she thinks about me. And, and if there's a window of opportunity, maybe you could say, uh, my brother, is he happens to be here, and he would like to speak to you. And then maybe just you know, slyly hand me the phone. And so I, I really rehearsed all this with Cassandra. And, and so Cassandra was like, OK, yeah, yeah, OK, 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 I'll do it. So we dialed the number, and Cassandra's, it's ringing, and she's calling, and Britton answers. And Cassandra says, hi, this is Cassandra. My brother would like to speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, whew, so, I, so I was on the spot, you know. And, uh, and here we are 18 years later. And uh, I, I'm just saying, I, I took the initiative. I asked her to, you know, hang out with me. And we built a relationship together. And eventually I kneeled down and, and proposed marriage to her. Uh, and, and while there's some of that story that can apply to this, please understand, God does take the initiative, but... God is not a nervous teenage boy. God is not a, a young, fun teenage girl. We sometimes want to put love in our own human box. And, and please understand, the love of God, the agape, self-sacrificing, wonderful, amazing, supreme love of God is, is far greater than anything we have ever experienced. We often put it in our own cultural context. And while some of that in some ways can be appropriate and even theologically correct, please make sure that we don't bring the love of God, though, down to our own pedestal, our own level of finite understanding. Marvel at the fact that the love of God takes the initiative. He loved us before we ever loved Him. Not only that, but secondly... And I'll spend significant time on this second concept. The love of God, as revealed in our verse, provides propitiation. The love of God provides propitiation. Notice at the end of verse number 10, the Bible says, to be the propitiation for our sins. And a travesty in American Christianity is that so often when we hear sermons on the love of God, we hear nothing about the word Sin. Inside the word propitiation, this theological term is also the idea, there's a, there's a positive side of propitiation and a negative side, if you will, of propitiation. Uh, the, the negative side has to do with the wrath of God. The negative side has to do with sins. So often when uh, the, the TV preacher that wants to be accepted by the masses uh, or the uh, the seeker-sensitive pastor that, that, again, wants to just garner to himself a crowd and a following, so often these people will, will not touch on the negative side of propitiation, the, the wrath of God, the sins of the world. They will avoid the negative topic. And yet, when John pens inspired words and he describes love, he mentions sin and propitiation. The propitiation of our sins. The word propitiation is this idea. It is to appease God. It is the idea of setting aside the wrath of God. 
When you consider this aspect of propitiation, the, the wrath of God, it truly will lead us to a biblical understanding and appreciation for the love of God, appeasing the wrath of God, setting aside the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is the idea of God's holy anger against sin. Again, the propitiation for our sin. God's holy, righteous, justified anger against sin. Would you think for just a moment about your sinful propensity? Would you stop comparing yourselves among yourselves and justifying your own sinful tendencies? And, and would you consider for the next few moments the wrath of God? Because before we can understand the love of God, we have to consider the wrath of God. We'll never appreciate the love of God until we understand His wrath. Until we have an understanding of God's displeasure with our sin, there is no real reason for us to rejoice in His love. The truth is, there'll be no rejoicing, no real rejoicing. No real wonder or adoration, no awe, no bowing down, no worship over God's love until we understand His wrath against sin. It is only then when God's love is appreciated. The love of God provides propitiation, and the, the negative aspect of the propitiation is the wrath of God. Again, implied in the definition of the term, it, it, the, the definition is appeasing the wrath of God. In order for us to appease the wrath of God, we must consider Christ. You ever see somebody holding up a sign that says Christ is the answer? It's a great sign. We might drive by and, and see them holding that sign and say amen, maybe out loud in our automobile or in our heart. The only problem with just holding up a sign that says Christ is the answer is that so many people don't know the question. Christ is the answer, yes, but to what question? So many people view Christianity as uh, a, a religion that is keenly interested in social reform. And while certainly the implications of the gospel have an impact socially upon a society and the civility of a society, Jesus did not come primarily for social reform. Christ is the answer to a spiritual reform. The question is, you know, Christ is the answer. What's the question? The question is, what am I going to do with my sin? As an unholy, unrighteous being, what does a person do who wants to spend eternity in heaven with a righteous God, a holy God? What's he going to do with his sin? The object of the wrath of God. The wrath of God rests upon an unrighteous world. Christ is the answer, yes. But specifically, the question has to do with spiritual reform. The question is, what about my sin? And the answer is Christ, and it is not... The answer is not good works. The answer is not religious tradition. It is not trusting in men. The answer is not waiting for the Pope to speak ex cathedra. The answer is not uh, keeping the, the catechism and the sacraments of the church, the Catholic church. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, Christ is the answer, and Christ alone is the appeasement for the wrath of God. People that don't understand 
God's wrath against sin. They don't understand their need for propitiation. They might say in their heart, well, God loves me because, after all, I'm, a, I'm an amazing individual. They look within themselves and they don't see sin. They don't see depravity. They don't see what David saw in Psalm 51 when he said, in sin did my mother conceive me, speaking that from the moment that he was born, he was a sinner. They don't look within themselves and say there's none righteous, no, not one. They don't look within themselves and say that we're all sinners and that we've fallen short of the glory of God. No, so many people, even people that claim to be Christians, look within themselves and they say, I'm an amazing individual. And the power of positive thinking is promoted even in our humanistic public schools. And to say, well, God loves me because after all, I'm an amazing individual, is wrong. It's theologically, biblically incorrect. God does not love us because we are amazing individuals. God's not impressed with us. Some of you are mad at me already. But He's not. He is powerful. We are weak. He is all-knowing. We're forgetful. He is unlimited and we are limited. So what is it again that's so impressive about us? That God would love us because He is also impressed with us? God's love is not like human love. We set our affections on someone because we have found something lovable in them. That's human love. Or we love someone because we're attracted to them in some way. God's love has no such attraction. God doesn't love us because of who we are. Listen to this. God loves us because of who He is. God is love. That's His character. That's the attribute we're considering. That's His nature. God is love. He doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who He is. It's not your quick wit. It's not your engaging personality. It's not your big bank account. It's not your business connections. Those are not the reasons that God loves you. It's not about what you bring to the table, spiritually speaking. You read in Romans chapter 5, this familiar verse, God commendeth His love toward us, listen to this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us because love is who He is. Again, it's not what we're bringing to the table. He died for sinners. Sinners who are the object of the wrath of God. And, and I want you to understand a little bit more about God's wrath. God's wrath is not volatile. God's wrath is not nasty. God's wrath is not hasty. God's wrath is not out of control. God does not fly off the handle into some unexpected form of rage. That's, that's typical human wrath. Human anger rises and falls in response to the things that people around them are doing. You said this, and I'm mad about it. You looked at me that way, and I can't believe it. And now I'm going to have my vengeance upon you. you know? Again, we try to put God in our human context. God's wrath is not volatile. It's not hasty. It's not out of control. God doesn't have mood swings. One theologian said it this way. He said, God's wrath is the inevitability of His holiness. He said, His wrath is His response to sin in all of its dimensions. 
the theologians said, God justifiably hates sin. And again, until you understand that God justifiably hates sin and that sinners are the object of the wrath of God, when you, when you get there, it is then that you start to appreciate the love of God. And part of our problem is that sin doesn't, sin doesn't incur, incur our wrath. Again, we, we often justify it or excuse it or compare ourselves to others, and after all, we're doing better than they are. So, so no wrath comes from us about our own sin. We seem to not care about filthiness. We seem to not care about wicked thoughts. Our society is, is watering down the concept of sin more and more and more. It doesn't seem to bother us that our society is so full of hatred and abuse and, and slander and rebellion and, and gossip and, and that so many of our own hearts are full of these wicked, sinful things. So why would we think that God would have wrath against sin? I mean, we ourselves justify it and excuse it and minimize it. Ladies and gentlemen, until the Spirit of God reveals to you the ugliness of, of your rebellious heart, of my rebellious heart, until that happens, you will have no interest in or appreciation for the story of His amazing love. It is only amazing and marvelous and wonderful when you understand your sin. When John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote it in the context of the fact that he was a sinner. When Paul penned so many inspired words as he penned the majority of the New Testament, he many times mentioned, oh wretched man that I am, and things that had to do with his sinful nature. He marveled at a loving and gracious and merciful God because he knew who he was. In Isaiah chapter 6, you find Isaiah saying, I am undone, the prophet of God, the man of God. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knew his sinful propensity. And yet he looked at a good God and, and the angels and, and, and Isaiah recognizes the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. Until the Spirit of God reveals to you the ugliness of your rebellious heart, you will have no interest in or appreciation for the amazing, gracious, marvelous love of God. So somebody says, well, how is it possible for, for God to love, listen to this, how is it possible for God to love sinners without compromising His holiness? Understand, holiness is the idea that God is completely separate from sin. So how can He love sinners without compromising His holiness? And how can He exercise His wrath, His wrath against sin? How can he exercise his wrath without diminishing his love? It's kind of a paradox, it seems. And yet this verse gives us the answer. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And listen to these words. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How is it possible for God to love sinners without compromising His holiness? How can He exercise His wrath without diminishing His love? It is found in those three words, sent His Son. This leads us to thought number three and the final thought for the message. The love of God sent His Son. Not only does the love of God take initiative, not only does the love of God provide propitiation, 
and we have considered the negative side of propitiation. But thirdly, the love of God sent His Son. This is the positive side of propitiation. This is the appeasement to the wrath of God. This is the answer to the question, how is it possible for God to love sinners without compromising His holiness? The answer to the question, how can, we, how can God exercise His wrath without diminishing His love? This is the answer. Greater love hath no man than this, but that a man would lay down his life for his friends. When you think of the cross, when you think of the love of God, you consider that he sent his son. This is love. And this is the positive side of propitiation. God's love crosses the vast chasm that exists between God's holiness and then the men and women that are sinners, like us. God's love is expressed at great cost. I read yesterday, uh, and even this morning, Matthew chapter 27. It's good for us to, to read through the crucifixion story, the accounts in the Gospels uh, of, of Christ going to the cross, and Christ sacrificing His life on that cross. Christ dying for our sins. You read in Peter's writings, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18. The Bible says this, For Christ also hath, listen, once suffered for sins. You think of the suffering of Christ, you think of the cross. Suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Now listen to this. The just for the unjust. The just there is Jesus, the unjust is the object of the wrath of God, sinners. He suffered on that cross, the just for the unjust, that we might, that, that he might bring us to God. I'm telling you that God's love is reconciliation. Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, the Bible says this. By the way, I love this verse. This verse speaks of the love of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says this. We're talking about God's love and reconciliation. For he hath made him, referring to Christ, the first he is God. For he hath made him, referring to Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Can I tell you that many people, many people, many people, have died on crosses in human history. The reason that the symbol of the cross is so precious to Christians, the reason that it speaks volumes concerning the love of God, is because Christ died on that cross and He was one who knew no sin. He was the perfect, spotless sacrifice, the propitiation, the appeasement of the wrath of God. He was our substitute. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is 15 Greek words. It is 25 English words. And it is the essence of the love of God. When you look at the cross, please understand that Christ, who was innocent, 
He took the punishment of our sin upon Himself. And He took the initiative, if you will, for the ungodly. And even for His enemies. You read in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2, the Bible says, And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the love of God. I say again, this is the love of God. And you think of the death of Christ on the cross. Understand that it is there that our sin is overcome and the wrath of God, it is appeased. This is the love of God. The reason that we don't have to bear our sins is because Christ bore our sins in our place. This is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. When a Christian sees a cross, a Christian, somebody that understands the gospel, they have been redeemed. When they see a cross, they see the love of God, and they say, He was there in my place. When they see a cross, they say, It was my sin that put Him there. One theologian said it this way. He said, propitiation is the appeasement of the wrath of God. Listen, through the love of God, by the gift of God. So Christian person, this is reason for rejoicing. This is reason for wonder and adoration and awe concerning the character of God. Christian person, this is reason why we bow down before Him, why we worship Him, why we come and assemble ourselves together and endeavor to extol Him. Because he died in our place. Because it was my sin that put him there. Because he is a loving God. Several weeks ago, Pastor Shetler was here preaching. And I think in the morning service, we deliberately sang, And Can It Be? And we sang it because we knew it was one of his favorite songs. Dr. Ainsworth led that song, and he mentioned that to me, and I thought, what a good idea. We want Brother Shetler to feel at home and enjoy the song service and and, uh, and, and an interesting phrase in that beautiful song is in the chorus where Charles Wesley wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is the love of God. It's, it's amazing. Okay, so if I call your name and put you on the spot and say, Tell me a verse other than the ones we've just studied that is maybe the most famous verse that explains the love of God. It's not only the most famous verse that explains the love of God, it's probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And that is John chapter 3, verse 16, where the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, I love the word whosoever, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And just by way of conclusion, please understand the context of that passage of Scripture. John chapter 3 opens with a religious man asking or communicating with Jesus. The religious man is Nicodemus, and the Bible says in verse 1 of John chapter 3 that Nicodemus was a Pharisee and that he was a, a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, con concerning heaven, eternal destination, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, ye must be born again. As you have heard things this morning about the wrath of God and the love of God, please understand, get this now, that God's love 
His reconciliation, His love, is not possessed by us until we receive it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's wonderful to meditate and marvel at the love of God. And Christians, certainly, we should adore Him and stand in awe of His love. But for those of you that that have never been born again, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You don't have a Bible reason why you have a home in heaven. Let me tell you that this amazing love is not possessed by us until we receive it. John chapter 1, verse number 12. Until we are born again. Has there been a point and a time in your life when you received the love of God? Where you called on Christ to save you? Listen, you knew you were a sinner. You knew you were the target of God's wrath. You knew that you were a hell-bound and hell-deserving sinner. And you called upon Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. You called upon Him to save you, to, to appease the wrath of God, to be the propitiation for your sin. When did that happen for you? For me, it was 1988. Will you receive the love of God? And Christian person, if you have received the love of God, will you marvel at it? Will you worship Him for it? Will you praise Him and thank Him that He took the initiative, that He loved you with an everlasting love? Would you bow with me, please, for prayer?